0: You are listening to the KRIKA Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other KRIKA podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about KRIKA's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Let me introduce Marina Zaloznaya. Um, who is assistant professor at the University of Iowa. And Marina works on a topic that is near and dear to the hearts of all who have experience with this region, that is corruption. Today, she's going to present um, her her book project, and this is a Cambridge University Press um, book, and um, the title of the book is the same as the title of the talk, and that is The Politics of Bureaucratic Corruption in Post-Transitional Eastern Europe. Europe. Thank you very much uh, all for welcoming me back to Madison. It's nice to be back here in a hot and balmy medicine. It's wonderful to be here, and I'm excited to be able to share uh, with you uh, the findings that have recently been published, as Ted mentioned, uh, in a book uh, in a Law and Society Studies series with Cambridge. So um, as any presentation on corruption should, I will begin by defining the term. Uh, Obviously, the term has been subject to verbal inflation and uh, has been defined in a variety of different ways. Uh, So I think it's important that we are clear what type of uh, social exchanges I talk about specifically in the book. Um, And the ones I focus on most directly are the exchanges between ordinary people, like you and me, with street-level officials who provide them with services. Right, so street-level bureaucrats like doctors, professors, tax officials, uh, policemen. Um, in, ex- in exchange for unsanctioned compensation to these officials, officials would then provide a service that they are required to provide by law. For instance, a university admissions committee would admit a student who is qualified for admissions or alternatively provide an extra legal service. Um, For instance, admit a student uh, whose grades do not uh, match the qualification uh, requirements. So what motivated me to uh, uh, do my research? Well, as a graduate student starting here at Madison, I um, started reading about corruption in post-communist states, and I was struck by sort of pervasive assumption in the literature that most of post-communist countries are pervasively, uh, endemically, ubiquitously, you name it, corrupt. So so corrupt that nobody really cared about the variation within the countries. Mostly, scholars were pointing out the high levels of corruption in these countries relative to other Western societies. Um, so here on the slide, you see uh, an example of uh, Frederico Marese, for instance, writing about, uh, uh, highly corrupt countries like Ukraine and Belarus. that they're trapped in the suboptimal equilibrium of pervasive corruption, where the cost of identifying a willing partner to corrupt exchange is virtually zero, and corruption comes to be considered as the normal state of affairs. Well, that scholars would focus on the high levels of corruption in the country at the expense of variation within uh, uh, the individual states is not surprising. Corruption is very difficult to study. Uh, it's hidden, uh, almost always it's illegal. So as a result, uh, the only systematic available data on corruption, especially for comparisons, um, are data like this. So on the slide here, you see a snapshot from corruption perception index rankings by Transparency International, a non-governmental organization. Uh, Alternatively, uh, similar indexes are also, indices sorry, are also created by business risk assessment organizations and business, business international. Um, And, um, as a rule, there are two-digit numbers assigned to individual countries annually um, that scholars then take and regress on other macro-level, country-level indicators to uh, develop arguments about the causes and consequences of corruption. Of course, that we have this data is wonderful, uh, but you can imagine all sorts of issues that uh, transpire when you try to uh, measure a phenomenon as complex as corruption with a two-digit number uh, and sort of trying to uh, put together all different practices that corruption entails. Right? Combined with a comparison across hundreds of countries, uh, what ends up happening is that some countries emerge as very corrupt relative to others, and that becomes the focus of uh, social scientific research. Now, these kind of statements didn't make sense to me in light of my own experience growing up in Ukraine. And also, they did not really agree with uh, within country polls on um, corruption. So here you see some numbers from uh, polls carried out by uh, local organizations, polling organizations in Ukraine and Belarus. Uh, in Ukraine, about 40% of people. Uh, Report having given bribes to officials in the course of the previous year in Belarus, this number is as low as 28 percent. Obviously, the numbers are probably conservative because there is a bias associated with underreporting illicit activity, but they do signal that not everybody engages in corruption in Eastern <coughs> Europe, right? And for some people, it really is not a part of their daily lives. Uh, a quick Look at the polls. Uh, Poll data would also reveal that neither gender, nor age, nor income, nor education of people can easily predict the propensity to engage in exchanges. So, this leads me to my first research question Who gives and accepts bribes and presents in street level bureaucracies, and who doesn't? Hmm. Now, um, when I, you know, read the literature that um, looks at the kind of macro level, especially political causes of uh, correction. Um, I I found that the dominant explanation is the one that links the legacy of authoritarianism to uh, uh, ongoing transition to democracy. What does this mean? Well, you know, all of the post-communist societies share the legacy of authoritarian state, and it is well established in the literature that authoritarian regimes tend to generate favorable preconditions for corruption. Uh, I'm not going to go into this in detail uh, for the sake of time, but basically the argument is that authoritarian regimes, especially those with planned economies, tend to um, decrease economic and political competition and politicize their criminal justice system. Uh, And as a result, they uh, decrease the accountability of public officials and uh, public officials are free to engage in corruption and other rule breaking with impunity. Uh, Now, uh, after the breakdown of the Soviet Union, then uh, the spikes in corruption that have been documented by indicators, like I showed you before, have been explained with reference to an allegedly ongoing transition to democracy. The idea is that these countries are democratizing, and because uh, transitions, intense political transitions, uh, are usually accompanied by economic recessions and institutional dysfunction, uh, uh, corruption levels spike temporarily. But the assumption is that, explicitly or implicitly, a, a lot of studies assume that once the transition is over, uh, the uh, corruption levels will go down. Well. I'm sure a lot of you are political scientists in in the audience, and uh, and it it will not come to you as a surprise that in political science, the uh, idea that transition is still going on has been rejected, right? So more than quarter century after the breakdown of the Soviet Union, uh, a lot of the post-communist countries are nowhere near. Being closer to the democratic ideal than the world of the late Soviet era, right? So, uh, political scientists uh, uh, rather explain, so they've given up on the idea of transition in favor of uh, arguments that um, a lot of post communist regimes have developed new hybrid regimes that combine elements of autocratic and democratic governance in unique configurations. So, what I do in the book essentially is I bring the hybrid regime theory into corruptology by asking, what is it about this new hybrid regimes that explains corruption landscapes? And by landscapes, I mean sort of variation right? how corruption is distributed within countries like Ukraine and Belarus. So how did I answer my questions? Well, um, you know, for anybody who said this subject like corruption, um, Uh, It is important to sort of draw data from uh, as many different sources as you can, because data are hard to reach uh, and uh, uh, difficult to triangulate. So I resorted to a variety of techniques and some creative solutions. But before I tell you about them, I would like to uh, briefly explain my selection of country cases and tell you more about why I focused on universities or higher educational establishments as my primary institutional focus. So I chose Ukraine and Belarus because uh, they make really good case for a paired comparison. Now I'm happy to talk about this more during the Q&A session. But the two countries sh- are, uh, you know, share a linguistic and cultural affinity, as well as a legacy of being the primary satellites to Russia during the Soviet period. They also have been characterized as hybrid regimes after the breakdown of the Soviet Union. At the same time, their political development differed significantly and we'll uh, talk about this more on in the lecture. I focused on universities, and here I use the term higher educational establishment as, a, as an umbrella term to refer to all institutions of higher learning, universities, academies, uh, institutes, colleges, so on, but I'm gonna use the word university just for the uh, simplicity of it uh, later on. I chose chose universities as my primary focus because um, upward of 80% of uh, Ukrainian and Belarusian high school graduates enroll in universities. This means that a large chunk of respective populations have contact with these bureaucracies, either as students or as parents of students. Also, uh, according to my uh, preliminary data, um, universities uh, are the context where young Ukrainians Uh, for instance, engage in the first-time exchanges, right? So their corruption exchanges may actually be formative um, in universities. So um, how did I collect my data? So between 2006 and 2013, I carried out four research trips to um, Ukraine and Belarus, and I spent... Uh, four to six months in each, uh, working in two universities in each country. This is not the pictures of the universities where I work for (laughs) uh, children's purposes, but but that's what universities look like in uh, these two Mm -hmm. countries. One of the uh, two HEs that I observed in each country was a large classical university, and the other one was a smaller specialized institute. Um, In each I worked, uh, I taught English uh, 15 to 20 hours a week. I also tutored students, I uh, hung out in faculty lounges, participated in extracurricular and social activities, and uh, spent time with students. During my time at the universities, I was able to recruit a diverse sample of respondents for in-depth semi-structured interviews. Uh, I carried out interviews with students, alumni, parents, instructors, as well as experts. So I complemented my interviews with university affiliates, with some interviews, with local experts on the topic of bureaucratic corruption. Um, These people included um, NGO officials, uh, governmental officials, journalists, and opposition electives. Uh, to assess some of the qualitative trends, so trends that were emerging from my qualitative data, I also carried out a small survey uh, of uh, 193 uh, Kiev students. And I'm going to tell you more about this survey a little bit later on. Um, another source of data, so I guess you can't see much, I'm sorry about that, uh, was uh, the analysis of online discussion forums. So it's a common practice in Eastern Europe for um, university students to uh, create these online chat rooms in which they exchange information basically on classes, you know, they share and sell notes, discuss professors, sort of kind of like ratemyprofessor.com, except for, um, it's a ratemyprofessor.com in which people also talk about how to give bribes to professors, right? So that's why this was valuable to me, uh, the data were sort of the only way for me to get at narratives of corruption that were not mediated by the presence of a researcher. Um, I also complemented my data with analysis of documents. Like see here, you see uh, uh, a law and an NGO report. uh, Sort of the the document, the documentary sources helped me understand the educational policy um, in uh, the early 2000s. So, what did I find? In Ukraine, um, people thought about corruption in universities in a few different ways. The majority talked about um, bribery and present giving and string pulling with chagrin. Um, They talked about its negative effect on the quality of education and uh, on rates of inequality in the country. However, a lot of people also talked about bribes being quite useful for them, right, because they allowed them to waste their time on studying things they didn't want to study. And they allowed <laughs> professors to not grade bad papers and things like that. So, <laughs> you yeah, know, they saw this as a quite, a, quite a useful arrangement. Uh, however, regardless of their personal stance on the issue, most people uh, talked about corruption as being widespread, right? So they called it a rule rather than an exception, a fact of life, a reality that we cannot escape. And um, from my interviews, I was able to um, uh, conclude that the three main, I call them risk points, or times when corruption was most likely, are the time of admissions um, during exams and uh, the time when the large homework assignments were due. A consistent theme that emerged from my interviews is that face-to-face exchanges between students and professors are extremely rare. So most of the time, there is no direct money for grade transaction. Rather, students usually use a way, that, um, what I call in the book, a uh, facilitative mechanism, kind of an established way of transmitting bribes within their organization that allowed them to avoid a risky and uncomfortable interaction. Right? So for instance, a lot of exchanges happen through intermediaries, so I call it an mediated exchange. right? So a, a lot of uh, departments have uh, so-called designated intermediaries, so uh, it would be a person that everybody would know is somebody you go to if you want to give a bribe to a professor. right? It can be an administrative assistant, a secretary, uh, uh, a lab assistant, a low-level uh, uh, faculty member even. Uh, uh, usually, the interactions between uh, students and the, uh, go, and the intermediary are pretty businesslike. Uh, you know, in exchange for kind of a, a quick question, like how much should I give, uh, the intermediary names the price and then passes on the, the money to the professor. Uh, bribes can also happen by mail, where uh, students put their zhetki, the small grade books, put money in their zhetki and send the uh, Chotky through intercampus mail and receive the zachotka back with a grade but without the money. <laughs> uh, uh, some departments even have institutionalized price lists or sort of this uh, uh, list of uh, prices that are appropriate for different grades within different uh, subjects uh, that are unofficially circulated in the student body. If you want to, we can talk more about this during the Q&A. Um, Consistent with local uh, opinion polls, I find that only about half of my students reported engagement, not my students, but uh, students interviewed reported engagement in um, uh, corruption, and only about a third of instructors. Once again, you may say that, of course, why would they tell you that they did it? True, uh, these numbers probably underestimate uh, the number of uh, people who did engage in corruption, but there are two other things in my data that point to the fact that most likely um, there is consistent differences uh, 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 between those who do and who do not participate in The first one is that my interview is. Talked about their acquaintances and people they knew as having differential likelihood of engaging in corruption. right? So they talked about, you know, for instance, a cousin of theirs who gives bribes all the time in, the, in, in her university and a neighbor of theirs who never gives. Uh, also, people who insisted that they have never given bribes at the universities uh, had no problem admitting bribery elsewhere, right? So they, like, oh no, I don't pay professors, but doctors, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I, based on that, I kind of make an argument that uh, there is no reason why they would be hiding their engagement in university specifically. Um, so what I did is I used my interviews to try to understand how people come to make their decisions about uh, the necessity to give bribes, uh, and uh, try to understand the variation um, uh, through uh, that inquiry. Um, well. One thing I found is that Ukrainians think about university bribery well before they enter the universities, right? In fact, they consider what they believe to be the corruption level of a specific university alongside other things you might consider when you're choosing a college, right? Um, I don't know, prestige, location, tuition rates. Uh, The uh, quote uh, on the slide illustrates the parents take the corruption levels into consideration when deciding where they can afford or not afford to send their kids. When my son was choosing where to study, his ideas were unrealistic. He wanted to apply to some schools where we would never be able to afford the payments. And it was clear in the interview that he was not referring to tuition payments. Uh, to get him through, his mother and I had to be straight. Here is what we can pay, so here's what you can count on. He then chose some schools where bribery was moderate. Um. In fact, I um, remember I mentioned the sur- little survey that I did. Um, in this survey, I asked 193 Ukrainian students to rank eight different departments across four different institutions, um, departments they were not affiliated with, according to what they believed their corruption levels were. Uh, so they were given a, a very simple scale uh, between zero and five, sorry, six, or six indicated highly corrupt, zero-indicated transparent or non-corrupt. So here you see the frequency distributions for this uh, rankings for two different universities. You see that students ranked in Hila Academies, most students ranked at like, somewhere between um, a half on, and three and a half on the corruption scale, while Taraschenko University was ranked uh, by most uh, somewhere between uh, two and a half and five and a half. So this Data show us two things. First of all, is that there is consistency in how people think about corruption levels in universities, right, that corruption reputations do exist. They're real, right? Most people agreed on uh, ranking uh, over here. Also, it shows that there is significant differences among the universities in terms of their corruption reputations. Now, once the students join the university, they um, usually turn to their um, uh, upperclassmen or other students who had taken the courses that they're taking right now to find out essentially about the necessity to bribe and about their ability to get away without bribes. Uh, It is based on the stories of the upperclassmen as well as their hearsay and observation of peers and faculty as well as conversations with people familiar with the uh, specific specific instructor, that students usually draw their conclusion about whether or not they need to bribe. They learn the informal rules of bribery from interactions with others in their specific institution. And afraid to test these informal rules, they oftentimes offer bribes and bring presents preemptively without being. So here's a uh, quote from one of the students who uh, uh, illustrated this dynamic to me. So just by hanging around, you hear things. People tell you about their experiences. You watch professors. Basically, you collect this information ahead of time so that the exam does not catch you unprepared. Because the stakes are high for the students. They don't want to fail. Um, They don't want to feel embarrassed. They believe that it is their responsibility to find out about the necessity and do so. Uh, so um, in their book, I make an argument that correction um, or knowledge about corruption is transmitted through organizational cultures of different universities and that whether or not giving bribes is common within a specific institution is likely to determine the likelihood of a person who comes in contact with that organization of giving a bribe. Right, So basically what I'm arguing is that Ukrainian universities vary in their corruption levels and that it is the cross-organizational variation that we need to explain rather than the variation among teachers. Other data that I, I don't have time, unfortunately, for it right now, but other data that I have analyzed like the uh, online discussion forums also support my conclusion that there exists more and less corrupt universities in present day Ukraine. Now, what about Belarus? So, in March 2010, I took a two day trip to Minsk by train um, to uh, initiate my fieldwork there. And my arrival to Minsk marked kind of an unexpected shift in the trajectory of my research because, uh, based on everything I've read and the high corruption rankings that TI-CPI assigns to uh, Belarus. I expected to see a quite similar situation in Belarus and I did not, right? So here you see my field notes from uh, one of the first days or actually it was day seven at the Belarusian university. It is day seven and I still have not seen or heard anything. Uh, and the capitalization is not the original, right? I was very surprised. Uh, maybe the stuff is just more hidden, but the fact that no one has mentioned anything is truly odd. I do feel like people are getting more comfortable and I should be starting to hear about bribes and presents. Well, I never did. My expectation that I would start to hear never materialized. Uh, neither did my interviews show presence of uh, corruption. So uh, here are the two quotes from uh, two different Belarusian students that are typical of the accounts that they got from Belarusian students. I'm so sure, though, that in my department, among my professors and my classmates, nothing like that has happened. It Doesn't happen in my school. I mean, that stuff, it's all over. But our universe is an exception, really. Even more interestingly, uh, from the interviews, I discovered that corruption does happen in other bureaucracies, right? So um, my Russian respondents, easily admitted that they oftentimes give bribes and presents in order to get appointments, ensure good and timely service in uh, hospitals, DMVs, passport tables. So uh, here is a quote from one of my respondents who said that when her mom was um, sick and had to have a surgery, their main medical expense, quote unquote, were bribes. Uh, I also focused the main reviews on secondary schools and it turned out that uh, corruption was quite widespread in secondary schools in Belarus as well. It takes the form of tutoring for grades. So you pay a tutor and then you get the grade uh, no matter how you perform on the exam uh, or uh, so-called which you know, is when a, a teacher uh, collects money from parents for legitimate causes, but then like, field trips or repairs but then the results never, ne- never materialized because uh, the teacher pockets the money, as well as direct bribes and presents. So I guess um, what I saw in Belarus was not a cross-organizational variation, but a cross-sectorial variation, right? So I discovered a higher educational sector free from bribes, and then I discovered other bureaucracies where bribery and other types of petty uh, corrupt exchanges were happening. So I want to summarize what I have argued to you so far. We have talked to you about so far. So in Ukraine, so each of those blue quadrants represents an um, organizational sector: higher education, healthcare, and secondary education. So in Ukraine, there is variation. There is more and less corrupt organizations within each. Uh, while in Belarus, the primary axis of variation. That transparent or non-corrupt higher education uh, exists alongside healthcare and secondary education, where within it, which there is also a cross-organizational interaction. So that's what I try to explain. And um, I'm going to give you a summary of the argument that I make in the book, and then I'm going to uh, use my Belarusian case to um, uh, tell you how I make the argument. So the the argument has two parts. First, I argue that hybrid regimes, sorry, it's it's cutting off uh, part of the slide. Uh, Hybrid regimes in a post-communist space combine the um, elements of governance that are usually associated with liberal democracies as well as autocratic regimes. Um, As a result, such regimes accommodate cultural schema that oftentimes do not coexist in the (coughs) pure regimes, right? So what I argue about uh, uh, is cultural multiplicity of hybrid regimes. Basically, I say that because Ukraine, for instance, has oscillated between a pro-Western and pro-Russian governments and its its political pendulum has swung back and forth. Both corruption favorable and corruption unfavorable logics coexist out there in kind of Ann Swidler kind of way for ordinary people to draw on. And I, I, to, to convince you of this, I uh, give you a snapshot of this is a World value Survey data. Uh, it asks uh, respondents uh, how justifiable it is for somebody to accept a bribe uh, in the course of their duties. The first two. And the last two columns are data from Netherlands, New Zealand, United Kingdom, and United States, uh, you know, mature democracies. Uh, uh, upwards of 70% in each of these countries say that it is never justifiable to accept a bribe. In the middle, you see Ukraine, 50%, right? So, Ukrainians are just as likely to say that it is justifiable, bribery is justifiable, as they are to say that it is not justifiable. Uh, basically, what I'm arguing is that there exists this opposed different ways of thinking about corruption and they are available as cultural schema for ordinary people. Uh, They also become the um, basis for institutional logics or cultural schema for organizations in a lot of ways, right? So the institutional logics combine these different ways of thinking with institutionalized tasks and processes in organizations. So organizations can align with one institutional logic that's corruption favorable or another one that's corruption unfavorable. And I argue that it is one specific characteristic of the hybrid regimes that impacts how this alignment is going to happen. Uh, This characteristic is political turnover, the rates of political turnover. I define political turnover as frequency of change in political leadership. Um, and uh, uh, governance. And uh, the, the argument that I make in the book is that low political turnover, Belarus is my um, case, so low political turnover, uh, a lot of the time is a result of political pressure on select organizational sectors. As a result of this pressure, some organizational sectors are not going to have corruption. While other sectors that are not politically threatening, that are not a focus of, uh, of uh, political elites that are trying to maintain power and preserve low political turnover are going to have high levels of corruption. I'm gonna go into this argument in detail, but let me tell you a little bit about the other one. High political turnover or frequent changes in political leadership and orientation, I argue create opportunities for organizations, individual organizations, to align either with corruption favorable or corruption unfavorable institutional logics, They do so because they have weak regulatory landscapes and because there are political freedoms in, in regimes that have high political turnover. As a result, that variation is across organizations as opposed to across sectors. I know this is a lot, so let me go over the first part with actual data. So um, after I discovered the cross-sectorial variation in corruption uh, in Belarus, um, uh, my um, m- efforts uh, in terms of uh, uh, data collection became focused on trying to understand why is it that Belarusians who are likely to give bribes, use connections, uh, do favors in other bureaucracies, leave their corruption habits aside when they uh, come into the higher educational establishments. And uh, I began unraveling this puzzle with, uh, um, in an interview with an uh, older political science professor from the Russian State University who had in passing mentioned to me that the, university, the absence of corruption in universities was a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, it turns out that in the 90s universities were just as corrupt as other organizations in uh, Belarus uh, this discovery was later corroborated by other uh, by other interviewers and uh, by uh, local media reports that I analyzed uh, so something happened in the early 2000s that resulted in the cleanup of the uh, Belarusian universities, while other Belarusian bureaucracies continue to have high levels of corruption. So what happened? Um, in order to understand what happened, we need to talk a little bit about the political history of Belarus. Uh, the first few years after the breakdown of the Soviet Union, Belarus liberalized. Uh, it tried to open up its markets, tried to open up its political system. and But all this liberalization ended with the election of Alexander Lukashenko, who you see on the slide, in 1994. He's still in power. Uh, Lukashenko uh, is a self-proclaimed man with simple answers to complicated questions. Uh, he, um, who really, you know, has not had much experience governing before. So it took him a while to get a knack on, uh, on being a, a president. So um, for the first term that he was in power, Lukashenko did not care about universities. Essentially, he, his administration put very little attention uh, uh, to governance of higher education. So between 1994 and 2001, the Russian universities opened up. They liberalized. They uh, experimented with new curricula. They uh, tried out new uh, uh, teaching methods. Uh, They uh, westernized uh, their, for instance, the social science offerings that they had. And uh, alongside this liberalization was also the um, exposure of students to, alternative ways of thinking Uh, and uh, as it happens a lot of students grew attracted to alternatives to Lukashenko's backward looking and isolationist regime. Uh, So a lot of students became politically active right around the time. Now Lukashenko did not realize it until the year 2001. 2001 uh, marked the uh, um, drop in the electoral support towards Lukashenko from the students. In fact, uh, we don't know the exact numbers because these numbers are not um, accurate. The the official numbers reported by the Belarusian government are not accurate. Independent monitors recognize that elections are rigged and we don't actually know what happens. But uh, um, there is no doubt that the support for Lukashenko among the intellectual elites and students specifically was at all time low. Uh, other things that evidence the uh, the dropping rates of uh, student support and that led to realization on behalf of Lukashenko was the formation of two very popular student oppositional groups, uh, Malade Front, Maladey Front, sorry, Young Front and Zuber. Uh, also around that time in mid two thousands, uh, several other uh, uh, post-Soviet neighbors undergo pro-democratic revolutions you know, uh, in uh, Georgia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan, um, and in all of them, students are at the forefront of the oppositional movements, right? So Lukashenko understands that his laissez-faire policy in universities may actually be quite threatening to his regime. So what he does is he cracks down on universities. Uh, the first order of business uh, is shutting down of private educational institutions, right? Because private HEs are relatively dependent from the state. They don't depend on money. Uh, They had most freedoms. Uh, So Lukashenko closes most of them. Uh, He also engages in uh, prosecution of individual activists, those who are especially active, are either fined or uh, imprisoned during the time. Uh, He um, replaces the administrations of, of large state universities with uh, regime loyalists that are handpicked, essentially with a mission of ensuring political facility of the faculty and the students. Uh, and he embarks on this mission of uh, indoctrination. Uh, so around the time, uh, his administration issues a decree making the ideology of the state a mandatory subject, uh, right? So it's a subject in which you learn how Belarusian state is wonderful. That, that's what you learn, right? And uh, he also uh, established the Belarusian Republican Student Movement as a kind of a counterweight. Wait, sorry, counterweight to Young um, Front and Zuber uh, Sort of the goal of uniting the loyal students uh, and offering them some perks, like. Um, discounted membership in fitness clubs and uh, discount, discounted manicures. True story. <laughs> uh, seriously. Uh, the, probably the most interesting and cunning thing that he did uh, was the re- reinstatement of, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. or redistribution in, in English, uh, the uh, practice that was originally introduced during the Soviet times. Uh, and the practices, to assign the new graduates, new university graduates, to their first place to work for the first uh, two to five years. This is, you know, this is justified as, uh, you know, you don't pay for the education, so you um, you make up for it by working for the state or where the state wants you to work. And the original rationale is to ensure that the industrializing periphery would get its fair share of um, young specialists. but. Lukashenko used it for political purposes where those who were actually the most uh, politically active were likely to be sent furthest away from Minsk in their most politically active years. So what were the results of Lukashenko's reforms? Well, um, they were largely unintended actually. They they had an unintended side effect on university corruption. They limited the discretion of university members, right? So the um, The increased oversight and accountability requirements that were implemented by new university administrations resulted in uh, ordinary faculty members having simply less space in which they could maneuver, fewer freedoms. Right? They had to account for just about everything they do with an extensive paper trail, and they uh, they felt like every step of that they make, every choice that they make um, had to be explained and was watched by somebody, uh, according to my interviews. It's like there's always someone behind your back. There are all these rules. If you step out of line, even just a little bit, then it's all questions. Why did you do this? And what did you mean by that? We all need to feed our families, so we behave, so I behave. Um, This kind of stringent oversight also generated a climate of fear in universities. uh, not in the least supported by uh, the spectacle of occasional repressions against individuals, right? So uh, that same professor who originally indicated to me that uh, university corruption uh, used to exist in the universities in the 90s told me, uh, told me this. People are afraid, and if you take each individual instance, their fears may be ungrounded. But because from time to time they get confirmation, they keep on believing. So to summarize That's the that. argument, I argue to you that universities were a subject of political pressure, and the governance over universities has changed in the mid-2000s as a result of Lukashenko's growing realization of their political, the political risks associated with um, academic freedoms. So uh, because of that political pressure, universities decreased their spaces of discretion available for bureaucrats. Uh, resulting, essentially, in the eradication of corruption on their premises. Now, the arrow between the uh, political, low political turnover and political pressure threatening in organizational sectors is two ways, right? On the one hand, because Lukashenko had this power, as a result of low political turnover, he was able to uh, carry out uh, this uh, repression against universities. But also, these repressions gave him an opportunity to stay in power. So, I would like to sum up now. Um, how many of your sociologists? Okay, so two, three. Good. Uh, my, you know,
1: I, it is to my great
0: surprise that they found that sociologists are not really interested in corruption. The reason why it's surprising to me is because what you know, what could possibly be more central to inequality globally, right? Than corruption? And inequality is presumably the main disciplinary focus of sociology. So um, what I do in the book is I uh, take some of my findings, uh, empirical findings, and I try to develop the implications for the sociology of corruption if it were to exist. But we don't have to be fixated on the word sociology. We can just think of any kind of critical social scientific study of corruption. So what do my findings mean? Well, first of all, um, through the stories of ordinary Ukrainians and Belarusians and the institutions that bring them together, I essentially find that the myth of corruption cultures is just that. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. Uh, Many people resort to under-the-table transactions, and many people abstain. And the propensity to do so, actually, is... um, has to be explained, has to be understood in macro-level terms. So um, I think that any kind of critical study of corruption has to reject the myth of corruption cultures. It's understandable why it's there. Uh, It offers a very digestible heuristic for Western uh, policy analysts and researchers, but it is just as um, inaccurate as it is dangerous because implicitly it creates a hierarchy of societies in which non-Western societies emerges inferior to uh, mature democracies in the West. Um, Also, the variance that we see within countries Offers us a key to political roots of corruption. If what you try to explain are high levels of corruption or ubiquitous corruption, then you simply don't have an analytical leverage to connect it to concrete political processes. The studies that do cross country comparisons uh, of hundreds of countries uh, uh, in terms of their corruption levels conclude that high levels of corruption are associated with poverty, lack of democratic norms, uh, uh, you know badly functioning institutions, well, duh, right? I mean, we knew this. It's intuitive. It really doesn't move us forward with understanding the actual roots of corruption. And I think if we study on variance, it gives us that analytical leverage that we need. And in my book, I show that it actually is connected to one specific thing, you know, in the two countries that I look at, the rates of political turnover. Now, um, I also notice uh, in my book that because I was able to focus on one specific practice, right, the exchanges between ordinary people and officials, I was able to find a relationship between bureaucratic corruption and political corruption. So in Belarus, where political corruption levels are high, there is entire sectors that are free from corruption. In Ukraine, where political corruption is lower and there is more political turnover, non-corrupt sectors simply do not exist. So in these cases, there is an inverse relationship between political and democratic corruption. And disaggregating the notion of corruption, the umbrella term, which includes everything, and the kitchen sink or but the kitchen sink, whatever the English saying is, Uh, is paramount to understanding its causes. Because if we combine the notion of corruption uh, uh, into one umbrella term, then we're not able to see the uh, relationships between its different types. Um, And also the relationship between its two types kind of brings me to another important point that I want to make uh, with my research is that absence of corruption is not always the most socially desirable outcome, right? (laughs) So In places where um, law is subservient to the interests of uh, incoming politicians who want to preserve power, uh, breaking the law may not be the worst thing to do. And the fact that people can break the law may actually be a sign of political freedoms, as it is in my Ukrainian case. I think that for sociologists and anybody who wants to study corruption critically, it is paramount to reject the dominant uh, moralistic paradigm and step out of judgmental categories that we uh, tend to sort of spiral down into when we study things like corruption, and instead empirically evaluate the meanings and functions of corruption exchanges locally vis-a-vis the social value of law and rule following in that specific. I'm going to end with this so we can have time for questions. Thank you.